This episode is sponsored by Hank Green, whose new book, A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor, is out right now. Hank Green's first book, An Absolutely Remarkable Thing, was released in 2018, the story of a young woman thrown into and then growing her fame as the world suddenly has to deal with massive changes in the form of contagious dreams and mysterious robots that have appeared in every major city. The Associated Press called it a thrilling journey that takes a hard look at the power of fame and our willingness to separate a person from the brand. Book Reported said it was perhaps as honest a look as we will ever get into the phenomenon of cyber fame. Well, now that novel is out in paperback or at your local library, and also for cheap and audio form. And the sequel and conclusion of the story, A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor, is out right now. Library Journal's Starred Reviewed said, Throughout this adventurous, witty, and compelling novel, Green delivers sharp social commentary on the power of social media and both the benefits and horrendous consequences that follow when we give too much of ourselves to technology. A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor by Hank Green is out right now, and you can get it wherever books are sold. The beach was unusually busy on July 27, 1919. The small strip of sand between the railroad tracks and the water of Lake Michigan was scorching from the overbearing sun. Still, it was plenty crowded with people clad in modest one-piece suits that would barely pass as swimwear today. The current post-war job shortage surely contributed to the large crowds. What else did they have to do? Lake Michigan was all the Chicago residents had during the heat wave, and they joyously played in the sands and the shallows in the surf. The beach was segregated, not by law, but by informal tradition. Intermingling was rare and often met by anger or violence. The unofficial line was 29th Street. The white folks kept to the north of 29th Street, and black folks kept to the south. A group of black teens swam out into the lake, holding on to a piece of driftwood. Their lives had not been easy. They had fathers who died in the war, fathers who returned and couldn't find work, families living in cramped apartments and tenement halls. But for now, they had each other and they had the lake. They splashed each other and laughed, the sunshine reflecting off of the cool water. After some time in the deep water, they began to drift north. Soon the boys could see the sky between the buildings on 29th Street, and they realized they were crossing over to the white part of the beach. They desperately tried to paddle and kick to move the piece of wood south back to the other side, but the current was too strong. One by one, the teens departed from the floating driftwood, swimming back to the safety of the black side of the beach, until only Eugene Williams remained. His friends were calling for him to follow, but he gripped the wood harder. Eugene had neglected to reveal something to his friends because he was embarrassed. He couldn't swim. Eugene Williams was at the mercy of the tide, which continued to pull him north, firmly into the white section of the beach. Soon white beachgoers began yelling at him. The calls for him to return to the black section turned to angry slurs. The men hurled insults, and soon after, hurled rocks. Rocks thrown from angry white beachgoers splashed nearby. Eugene panicked. He lightened his grip on the driftwood and extended his legs, praying his feet would touch sand. His heart sank when his toes only felt colder water below him. He clung to the driftwood for dear life. He looked up at the beach to see hundreds of angry white faces yelling at him to return to his side. Splashes from the thrown rocks erupted all around him. The lifeguard from the black side dove into the water and swam towards Eugene as fast as he could. 
The lifeguard on the white side urged everyone to stop yelling and for the men to stop throwing rocks. They refused to listen. Eugene looked up to see the black lifeguard swimming his way. As he did, a rock slammed into his temple. His body went limp, and he slid off the driftwood. The water around Eugene turned red. The black side of the beach erupted into pandemonium. Angry witnesses of the rock throwing crossed the informal line dividing the beach. Police officers showed up and made their way through the chaos. Several black men pointed out the white man who had been throwing the rocks. A white police officer asked them for proof. Furious black onlookers demanded that they arrest the man responsible. Instead, the police arrested a black man who had been vehemently pointing out the rock thrower for disturbing the peace. The man who had thrown the rock dissolved into the crowd. Fights broke out. A black man pulled out a pistol and fired into the air. He was immediately gunned down by police. The scene erupted into madness. On the beach, the white lifeguard ran up to help the black lifeguard carry a lifeless body out of the lake. Eugene Williams was dead, but the violence in Chicago had only just begun. I'm Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. This is episode 63, The Dividing Line. Nineteen nineteen was already one of the most eventful years in history. The Great War had just ended. Cities held parades for soldiers returning from the horrors of trench warfare. Stateside, after years of fighting, the women's suffrage movement had finally secured women the right to vote. In Russia, Bolsheviks had toppled the rule of the Tsars and had instituted a centrally planned communist state. The leftward spirit in the air extended to other countries, with labor movements gaining steam across the globe. Unions and strikers clashed with police and Pinkerton agents in mines and mills and dockyards. Certain sects of anarchists coordinated bombings aimed at public figures like J.P. Morgan and John D. Rockefeller. Racial and class tensions led some reporters to label the time period as the Red Summer. All the while, Spanish flu had been around for almost a year, killing millions and showing no signs of stopping. Chicago, in 1919, was a city on edge. Since the turn of the century, millions of black laborers, many of which were freed slaves, began migrating north to escape the strict Jim Crow laws and lynchings carried out by the new Ku Klux Klan. Chicago, Illinois experienced the largest influx of black families who had fled the famines, droughts, and economic stagnation of the post-Reconstruction South. Many found work in the stockyards or meatpacking districts, but the sheer number of workers soon outpaced the available jobs in the city. In less than a year, 50,000 new black immigrants settled in Chicago. European immigrants, many refugees from the Great War, made their way to Chicago as well. All of these newcomers added to the tension. Black and white American soldiers arriving home from the war in Europe returned to a very different Chicago. Soon racial hierarchies emerged. Various communities formed informal militias that acted as neighborhood watches. Anglo-Saxons policed the Germans, who in turn policed the Poles, who themselves policed the Irish, who took it upon themselves to police black communities. A lot of these informal white groups that patrolled minority neighborhoods were fraternal organizations or athletic clubs, the most famous of which was the Hamburg Athletic Club. 
Located in central Chicago, the Hamburg Athletic Club operated as a paramilitary organization with sports teams, a gun range, and private classes for the white upper class. It often served as a springboard for politicians eager to raise their social status. Of course, no blacks were admitted. In addition to the athletic clubs, thousands upon thousands of white people, but especially the Irish, applied to be police officers. Hierarchies that used to be about specific European ethnicities soon devolved to be about only one thing, the color of one's skin. The undertones of racism turned to overt white supremacy in both official police officers and the unofficial white patrols. Meanwhile, unions lost a lot of their leverage with the abundance of available labor. Under immense pressure from political bosses bought by robber barons, many labor unions excluded blacks from being able to apply for membership. Factory owners were ecstatic because this meant blacks wouldn't go on strike with the unions, and they could utilize them as scabs. Many factory owners stoked the racism to erode solidarity among black and white workers. Law enforcement, on the other hand, created its own problems. The force became more and more white, and focused more on protecting white storefronts than from settling disputes or looking into murders of black people. Time and time again, white officers turned a blind eye to white supremacist violence while punitively punishing even the most minor crimes committed by African Americans. Black Chicagoans lost faith in law enforcement as more and more crimes against black people and black businesses went uninvestigated. Through redlining and price fixing, over 75% of the black community lived in the south side of Chicago in a strip of neighborhoods that became known as the Black Belt. Public funds were often diverted from the Black Belt and the people living there, a good portion of whom were freed slaves that felt betrayed by the progressive North. The Union had sent their sons to fight and die for the Union, who overthrew the Confederacy and abolished slavery, yet they were so cruel and racist themselves. Black soldiers returning from the trenches of the First World War felt the most betrayed. After speaking to several black veterans, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote, quote, We return from fighting, only to return to fighting. Unquote. Little did they know at the time, the racial conflict in Chicago would turn from fighting for civil rights to literal fighting in the streets. Only hours after Eugene Williams was murdered, protesters filled the T intersection at 29th and Lake Michigan. Black people were enraged at the stoning of Eugene Williams, and white people were furious at the violent response to it. The anger escalated from shouts to thrown items to a full-on brawl. A white man began shooting out of his storefront with a rifle. A large black crowd flipped a streetcar off the rails. Children in bathing suits ran to find their families on the beach. An angry mob of white men threw bricks to break the windows of a nearby hospital filled with the victims of the Spanish flu. Police officers and nurses in masks just managed to stop the white mob from entering. Leaders from both the black and white communities, from pastors to politicians to union bosses, retreated to their respective neighborhoods to more effectively organize against each other. Soon, groups of black protesters gathered outside of the police headquarters and city hall. They demanded justice for Eugene Williams. White counter-protesters gathered as well. The police formed a barrier between the black and white protesters in an attempt to cull the violence. 
However, several men on both sides ended up bloodied and bruised, but no one was killed. As night fell, the protesters on both sides slowly dispersed, but the actual violence was far from over. That night, intermittent screams and the sound of windows breaking kept the residents of Chicago on edge. During the night, white mobs broke into the houses of a few black men living in predominantly white neighborhoods. The next morning, several prominent black businessmen were found murdered in their homes downtown. With their deaths, the white supremacists had made a statement, you do not belong here. With the precedent set for black people who had crossed that arbitrary line, many decided to move back into the black belt. Elsewhere in the city, storefront windows were broken. Racist graffiti was painted on the streets in front of black homes. Despite the tension in the air, most people still commuted to work that morning. The trolley cars, the ones that were still operational, were more segregated than usual. At the railways and stockyards, black and white men and women went to work alongside each other. But there was an electricity in the air, a rage from the prior days and justices. But each side worked on knowing the value of a job where you could easily be replaced at a moment's notice. Over the course of the workday, white thugs killed a black teenager in an alley downtown, and a group of black robbers killed an Italian laundromat owner on the south side. Stories of racist violence, both true and false, swirled through the entire city of Chicago. As the workday concluded, Roving groups of angry white men filled up the trolleys, waiting to ambush any black laborers on their commute home. A black couple with their daughter in a trolley car found themselves surrounded by a group of angry white men, many brandishing weapons. The father grabbed his daughter and lowered her out of the window of the trolley and told her to run home. She did. Tears streamed down her eyes as she ran trying to ignore the sounds of her parents being beaten as she made her way home. Her mother would barely survive. Her father would not. Many black workers elected to walk for hours to get home, or even slept in their workplaces to avoid a dangerous commute. Those that did brave the white gangs were often beaten within inches of their life. Around sunset, a group of 50 white men chased a black man for half a dozen blocks, before finally catching him and kicking him to death in the street. That evening, several black dock workers were stabbed to death, their bodies left on a pier in Lake Michigan. Fires were set in neighborhoods across Chicago. Firefighters couldn't respond to all the calls. The mayor of Chicago instituted a curfew. All bars, restaurants, and any other place men potentially gather were hereby closed until further notice. The police were no longer answering the phone. There was a line at each department to file reports. Almost no one showed up for their night shifts. Night fell on the second day of the riots. In the twilight, Model T's zoomed around the city, drunk white men with rifles firing indiscriminately into black neighborhoods. All over the city, fires burned. The thick clouds above were illuminated orange through the sickly smoke. Exhausted firefighters, many having worked for over 24 hours straight, evacuated and blocked off neighborhoods that they couldn't save. The fires raged throughout the night. Around midnight, a group of Lithuanians sat in wooden chairs on the roof of a storehouse in their Eastern European neighborhood. They had snuck out of their windows to smoke cigarettes together, maybe catch a glimpse of some of the action. It turns out, it was their lucky night, 
black men rode into their neighborhood on horseback, hooting and hollering. The ominous riders carried torches and guns. They set fire to porches and broke windows with bricks. Horrified families hid in the basement or behind pianos as the chaos surrounded them. The Lithuanian teenagers peered down on the chaos from above. As they watched a black rider throw a rock towards a second-story window, they noticed his hands were not black. In the glint of the fires, they also noticed the riders' faces were black as tar, crudely painted. The riders were not, in fact, black. They were in blackface. The teens fled from the flames, but told others fleeing the scene what they had witnessed. With the help of a reporter, the riders in blackface were later revealed to be members of the Hamburg Athletic Club. The Irish gang had been wanting a race war for quite some time, and tried to villainize the black community and get the Eastern European neighborhoods on their side. But their blackface raid backfired. The Eastern European immigrants instead empathized with the black community. Many opened their homes and began distributing food for black refugees from the local synagogue the next day. As the sun rose, Chicago looked like a war zone. Ash fell from the sky. Neighborhoods had set up barricades on the streets to prevent drive-by shootings. Haphazardly organized militias patrolled the borders of neighborhoods with rifles. Flipped streetcars and burned-out police Model Ts lined the streets. Rolling thunder rumbled in the distance. The biggest newspapers reporting the violence blamed black communities for the damage. Many articles included outright false stories of black men attacking and raping white women. Industry in Chicago ground to a halt. Gunshots could still be heard, and fires from thrown Molotov cocktails were yet to be contained. Some of the only places exempt from the mayor's forced closures were hospitals filled with Spanish flu victims and churches. Many churches became literal sanctuaries filled with huddled families, crying children, and wounded men. One historic black church became a makeshift field hospital. A great war veteran, Harry Haywood, guarded that church from the bell tower, aiming a scoped rifle down the street. Less than a year prior, Haywood had been aiming his rifle towards the German trenches in the Ardennes. He later regretted his military service and wrote, quote, I had been fighting the wrong war. The Germans weren't the enemy. The enemy was right here in Chicago. Unquote. That afternoon, several white leaders, ranging from politicians to union bosses to athletic club presidents, met in North Chicago. They made clear their plans. That day, they were going to burn the entirety of the Black Belt, or what was left of it, to the ground. Word spread quickly. The governor of Illinois, Frank Loudon, had been monitoring the situation carefully. All of the evidence led to the police chief and the mayor as either being apathetic to the violence against the black community or willfully rooting for its destruction. After repeated warnings, Governor Loudon told the mayor of Chicago, if you don't step in, I will. Loudon wanted to protect the black belt, but he also wanted to prevent Chicago from burning to the ground as it had during the horrific Great Chicago Fire less than 50 years prior. Governor Loudon called in the Illinois National Guard, which organized in the Black Belt within the day. Black and white soldiers stood on guard at street corners and behind makeshift barricades. With the enormous military presence protecting the oftentimes still-burning black neighborhoods, no massive attack by white mobs ever came. 
The rain started as the sun set, a drizzle at first, but soon the heavens opened up. It rained harder than it had in a generation, pouring in through broken windows, putting out the raging fires, washing away the ash, the blood, the tears. The torrential downpour on the night of July 30th, 1919, marked the end of the Chicago riots. The end result was 38 deaths and well over 500 serious injuries. Over 70% of the victims were black. The riots may have been over, but the tensions that caused them and the damage caused by them still remained. The riots in Chicago were not the only racial violence enacted against black people in the United States in 1919. Smaller race riots and mass lynchings occurred throughout the United States in what was referred to as the Red Summer. Places like Washington, D.C., Omaha, Nebraska, Elaine, Arkansas, and Knoxville, Tennessee experienced widespread violence, including arson and extrajudicial killings carried out against black people by white supremacists. Hundreds died and thousands were injured over the course of the year. The Red Summer also coincided with the worst time frame of the Spanish flu, which infected 500 million people and killed over 50 million humans across the globe. Black newspapers published harrowing accounts from the witnesses of the Chicago race riots. The survivors recounted the violence in vivid detail, and many of these stories were republished in larger newspapers like the Chicago Tribune and the New York Times. In addition to the journalism, newspapers in the Black Belt published poetry from survivors. This poem by Claude McKay reads, quote, If we must die, let it not be like hogs, hunted and pinned in this inglorious spot, while round us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock at our accursed lot. If we must die, oh, let us nobly die, in vain, then even the monsters we defy. Like men will face the murderous, cowardly pack, pressed to the wall, dying, but fighting back." Unquote. After the riots, the legal system was backed up for months, and only a few people were ever arrested or charged with crimes from the violence. The police brought in the convicted rioters. All of them were black. Some of the more justice-minded jurors were outraged at the one-sided convictions, causing some of them to walk out in protest. One juror complained, What the hell is the matter with the state's attorney? Hasn't he got any white cases to present? The jury then deferred hearing evidence of all cases against African Americans until white rioters were also charged. The judge lectured the police, saying, quote, I want to explain to you officers that these colored people could not have been rioting among themselves. Now bring me some white prisoners. Unquote. The police officers eventually brought in white criminals, but no white person was ever convicted of any crime for the violence. One man was eventually arrested for the death of Eugene Williams, but he was later acquitted by an all-white jury. The only police officer killed in the riot was Patrolman John Simpson, an African-American who was killed by members of a white gang. Richard Daly was a prominent member of the Hamburg Athletic Club, widely regarded as one of the most violent of the Irish gangs during the riots. Daly became a politician and had to fight off questions of what he did during the riots for his entire career. Despite these accusations, Richard Daly eventually became the mayor of Chicago and served 21 years until 1976. In the end, more than 1,000 families' homes were destroyed, 
mostly in the Black Belts and nearby Eastern European neighborhoods. In much of the Black Belt, rows of charred brick fireplaces, like a decimated forest, were all that remained. Thousands of black families packed whatever belongings they had left and headed back south, braving the possible lynchings and Jim Crow laws of the south rather than the urban violence of the north. The end result of the riots was mostly a further separation of the races in Chicago. Wealthy white landowners would sign neighborhood contracts that were perfectly legal, refusing to sell their property to any black person. These immense neighborhood differences have continued to this day. Three years after the riots, an independent commission was set up to determine the causes of the violence. The end result was a landmark study called The Negro in Chicago that tried to dive into the causes of the violence. The usual culprits of lack of jobs and increased immigration were present, of course, but the study really came down hard on the white gangs, for the first time naming white supremacist violence as the true escalator of the conflict. Recommendations were given that included guaranteed jobs for returning veterans and greater police oversight. The study made a particular impression on a social psychologist named Kenneth Clark. Clark is perhaps most well-known for conducting the famous doll experiments, which revealed that even black children preferred to play with white dolls. He was called to give testimony during the Brown vs. Board of Education trial in 1954, and was later called to testify for the Kerner Commission that was investigating the causes of the 1967 race riots. During his testimony, he said, quote, I read the report from the 1919 riot in Chicago, and it is as if I was reading the investigative report of the Harlem riot of 1935, or the report of the Harlem riot of 1943, or the report of the Cone Commission after the Watts riot of 1965. I must say to you, in candor, members of this commission, it is a kind of Alice in Wonderland, with the same moving picture shown over and over again. The same analysis, the same recommendations, and the same inaction. Unquote. We seem to be trapped in a never-ending cycle. Over the past 100 years, these same problems have happened again. In a hundred places, Detroit is afire. One hundred square blocks are now under siege. And as you walk through the area, people shout from their homes, watch out for the snipers. And again. I think we've got to see that a riot is the language of the unheard. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight. And again. Involving the four officers accused in the beating of Rodney King. We're being told that several so patrol cars have been surrounded. We've all seen the pictures of Los Angeles police officers beating a man they had just pulled over. And again. No justice, no peace is what they're chanting. You can hear them now. We can still go in here. And again. There is an undercurrent of racism and that the system is rotten to the core. And I, I couldn't sit in my home and just watch it on television. I had to come here and let my voice be heard. And again. And that 
That's the sound of police firing shotguns with rubber bullets and beanbags. And again. You got the people down the city hall, they got all these degrees, but nobody understands a, a simple phrase that enough is enough. And again. And again. Come on, y'all. We are soldiers in the army. And again. And again. And again. To be tear gas envelop the streets. A CBS News cameraman took cover in a And again. What you're looking at is the aftermath of the grand jury deciding and not again. to indict As far as I'm concerned, they could burn this bitch to the ground. And it still wouldn't be enough. And they are lucky that what black people are looking for is equality and not revenge. This hasn't happened by accident. This happened and this happens on purpose. We can fix it on purpose. History doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. But sometimes the poem goes on for far, far too long. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton. You can find Historium on any social media platform or at orbitaljigsaw.com, where you can check out some of the other shows on the network. If you would like to support me and my work here, the best way to do so would be through Patreon. For just five bucks a month, you can get access to my entire back catalog of bonus episodes, including the last one I did with our story editor, Thomas Harlander. We talk about three wildly different topics, some sad stories of the Dust Bowl here in the American Midwest, a strange relationship Nikola Tesla had with a pigeon, and the mysterious death of Superman actor George Reeves. If you would like to listen to that episode and any of my past bonus episodes, you can find that on patreon.com historium for just five bucks. As always, thanks for listening.